Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107, and joining me is my friend, Ryan Ireland, who bathes in cold rain barrels every morning. How you doing, Ryan? Hi, Andrew. I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing awesome. So you get a nice little scrub-a-dub in your rain barrel this morning? Uh, no. All right. You're going to no-sell me. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm not taking the bait. So, Ryan, I want to introduce a new thing. Okay. It may be a new segment or it may be just a one-time thing. I don't know. But something that has long interested me is etymology. Not to be confused with entomology. Etymology, like the etymology of a word? Yes. So I'm, it's essentially word origins or word or phrase origins, right? I always I'm very found them familiar. to be kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're very familiar. I'm familiar. Let me take away very. Only because I studied a foreign language. Well, anyway, it's something I've always been interested in. And I think it might be fun to just cover one. So, And the other thing is my wife is originally from another country. She speaks English very well, but there are certain phrases and idioms and things like mm-hmm. that that she's just like, why do people say that? Yeah, we have the same and, thing at, at home because my wife is also from a different country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, both of our wives identify as German, so we're, we're good. We're, we're soul brothers in that regard. <laughs> but the thing is, occasionally she'll be like, well, why do people say that? And I'm like, I have no idea. So one of the, the phrases that I used a little while ago was dead as a doornail. Mm. And she's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> You know, do you have any guesses on what it might be? Dead as a doornail. Well, you know what it means, first of all. So what it means I know what it is means. like, all right, what does it mean? Well, it means it doesn't move. It's not moving. It's it's basically beyond ever being animated with life again. Is that right? Yeah, unequivocally deceased as opposed right. to, you know, I guess sort of dead. I don't know. I mean, dead is dead, but anyway. So it's what a- is a doornail? Exactly. So I had no idea though. It's one of those things that you just say and you're like, well, I have no idea why I say this thing, but it, I say it and it sounds right. And I know what it means when it says it, but it makes total sense that somebody else coming from a different background would have no clue. Like As you said, they wouldn't mm-hmm. know what a doornail is, first of all. And then why would you use that in comparison to something that's dead? Did you look it up? I did. So I looked it up. I do this all the time. I look them up to see what's going on with it. And apparently it comes from the manner of securing doornails. This is, you know, back in the 1800s when, you know, they didn't have mass production nails like we do now. They were just kind of like wedges that they would put in there. Mm-hmm. And apparently the way that doornails were secured is they hammered them into into the door by clenching them. And clenching them is the practice of you bend over the protruding part of the nail yeah. and you bang it in. Yeah. Right? And because of that, that nail can never be used again because it's been distorted out of uh, shape and it's then deader than a doornail and can never be reused. That makes sense. And you, so I grew up in the Northeast in one of the original 13 colonies. And so you see a lot of old structures and that actually is really common if, if you've ever renovated an old building or watched a TV show where they renovate old buildings. Like on this old house or yeah. something if they're in Boston and they renovate a really old house. They actually, you'll actually see that where the nails, because these days, if you see a nail that's been bent over and where the, the top end has been bent and hammered into the wood, it looks like someone that wasn't skilled at hammering a nail doing it. But right. that's, I guess that was common back then because you didn't have the flat tops like we do now. Yeah, that was just the only way to do it. Anyway, I thought that that's was kind of cool. interesting. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll we'll do this every now and again. And if you want to bring a word, bring a word. We'll see, yeah, we'll see so, how it goes. Yeah, that's a good one. I will say that the, I was actually telling my daughter about this. When I was in high school, getting ready for SATs or ACTs, 
the, the standardized testing. Our English teacher, I think my sophomore year of high school, made us learn word parts. And this is the Latin parts of words that would then help us determine the definition. And it also is related to etymology. You start to be able to come up with the definition of any word, as long as you can identify its word parts, you can basically determine from a, a, a list of definitions which one is correct. Good, yeah, and I actually studied skill. Latin. So I, I oh. have a kind of background in that as well. Uh, don't ask me why I was just a weirdo. Didn't take French, Spanish, or Russian or anything like that. I took a Latin. You took a dead language. That sounds great. I did take a dead language, yeah. but it was something that would be useful if you wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. But I didn't want to be either, so I don't I don't know. I don't get it. Do you also write um, code in Emacs? <laughs> uh, throw, throw in a little shade to the Emacs crowd. <laughs> this is very rude, Ryan. So I wanted to get into a couple of things. So you run a training site, allegedly, called CraftQuest. Plug, allegedly, plug. Yes. You're, you're welcome. And you teach people how to do various things, right? So you'll you'll say, this is how to do X, this is how to do Y. And I would imagine people probably subscribe for a few reasons. One is they want to know how to do X. They have a specific need. They need to solve it and they need to do that. Mm -hmm. And other people might be doing it just to kind of keep their mind expanded, to keep uh, on the pulse of you know what's going on and, and new possibilities and all that kind of stuff. So you're teaching people how how to do this stuff. My question to you is, how do you learn how to love the work that you're doing? Because it's pretty obvious that we spend a huge part of our day working, a huge part of our lives working. And studies have shown that people do a better job when they enjoy their work in one way or another. Do you think that this is something that you can train yourself to do? Are there strategies that you can use to try to love your work more or find your work more rewarding? Or is it a matter of you just have to find the kind of work that you do find rewarding? You see what I'm saying? Like, can you adapt yourself to enjoy the work that you're doing more? Or is it something that you have have to find work that adapts to you. What do you think? Can I say it's both? Yeah, sure. Well, what are some strategies for how you could start to learn to love your work then? I can only speak what it is like for me. And one of the things that I get a lot of enjoyment from with my work is the ability to research and learn something new as I'm trying to come up with a, a way to teach something. So kind of dig in, figure things out. So it's always a quest not to use the same word as my site, but oh it's my God. You're shaking your head. It's always a quest to learn something new. And that's where the joy comes for me. If I was doing a job where I was doing the same thing over and over every day, I wouldn't have that same joy. That being said, I think you can also find joy in that type of work. I just, I don't know that I can. Well, what about the phrase that there's no such thing as boring things, only boring people? In other words, it's not necessarily the thing itself. It's your interpretation of it or it's the way that you perceive it or that type of thing. I mean, I was watching a video and the guy was showing what he does for a job, which is he's a lumber inspector. Mm -hmm. And he's literally standing on an assembly line and cut lumber is going by and he flips it over and inspects it. And that's what he does all day. And he said he loves his job. Now, is that a matter of you have to be a particular type of person to love that? Or has he developed some kind of strategy for being able to enjoy that kind of work that you and I might say, well, it's kind of boring. Gosh, that's hard. I would say that he probably has developed a strategy to enjoy that type of work. To me, that shows a lot of, I don't want to say like emotional maturity, but there's to where you can be content with your life to where you don't always need something more and more and more and more. Where that person, perhaps he actually really does enjoy making sure that no bad pieces of lumber make their way out. Very important job, right? In terms of the output of whatever the, you know, the mill does. But he also might have a lot more rewarding parts of his life that are outside of his job, especially in the knowledge workspace where we are. It seems like we've been kind of trained 
to expect to get all of our fulfillment out of our jobs. <laughs> and I don't think that that always has to be the case. No, that would be sad if that were the case. But yeah. it would also be probably worse if we got no enjoyment out of our jobs because you're going to spend the majority of your day is either sleeping or working. So you got to right. find some way to find enjoyment out of it. Well, I, can I think tell that's you that part of the, the great resignation that's happening right now. Mm. Where after people have worked at home for a long time, they realize that the most rewarding part of their job might have been that in-person engagement they had with other people, seeing other people being in the office. And that was what the most fulfilling part of their job, not actually the work that they were doing. And so when they're doing it at home, they realize like, wow, this is really terrible and not fulfilling at all. Right. I would like to do something else now. Well, I can so. tell you that this is not something that I think about necessarily in terms of investing time in training myself to love what I do. But in reflecting on it a little bit, I think there are a couple of things that I do that allow me to enjoy the work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I think one is just whatever it is I'm doing, I like to take pride in what I'm doing, not pride in a bad way, but just the satisfaction that you did a good job on the thing that you're doing, no matter how big or how small that thing is. Making a bed, for instance, taking pride in that you you did a really nice hotel quality job on, on making that bed. We're, we're talking like Caesars Resort quality, not Motel mm. 6, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think you can do that in anything. For instance, when I was younger and even still today, I used to do a decent amount of origami paper folding. Hmm. And one of the things that I learned from doing that is that how precise you are in the beginning drastically affects how good the outcome is going to be because those initial folds kind of affect everything else. Right. Yeah. And that sort of teaches you that, hey, these sometimes the little things matter. So I think that's one of the things that I probably do. Now, I don't do that for everything. I mean, there are some things that I'm just like, all right, good enough is best. It's fine. Just leave it the way it is. But for things that I'm, I'm working on, I think I typically am trying to do that. And when I see that the result is good, I get satisfaction out of that. You know, no matter what the, the job is, it's I'm sure that if my job was mind numbingly awful, <laughs> that that would be more difficult to do. But, you know, for what it's worth, that's one thing that I do. Another thing that I do that I think is kind of related to that is I used to play sports. I'm competitive. I, I, I love the aspect of competition. And I think that drives me, again, to try to do a good job on the things that I'm doing. Not ne that I'm necessarily competing with a specific person, almost like I'm competing with myself. You know, I want to make sure that past Andrew did a good job on this or that I'm improving as I'm going forward. And I think that is something that I also get satisfaction out of that, the self-competition aspect of it. That's something that drives me. And I think the interesting thing to note here is that a lot of what is behind the stuff that I'm talking about is being honest with yourself in terms of understanding yourself and what motivates you. If you know that you're motivated by learning, for instance, you can build into the work that you're doing some amount of learning that comes along the way. Even if the job that you're asked to do is relatively cookie cutter, there probably always is some new little bit of technology or technique or something that you can fold into it and try to use to, to make it something that you enjoy doing. Is that something you find yourself doing? Yeah, totally. I, I do. But in terms of someone that has a, I don't have like a, a monotonous job where I'm doing the same things over and over. I mean, I do it to right. some extent, but not in a way to where it doesn't feel 
fulfilling. But I will say, if someone does have something like that, where they are doing similar things day in and day out, if someone could optimize that work down to, let's say, 20 hours a week, and then they have another 20, they're still outputting the same amount of stuff and they, they're fulfilling their role. And they have another 20, they can learn something new that actually helped their role or help them in a future role or something like that. That's where I think you can actually take a job that you might feel is mundane and make it interesting. I think one other thing that I do, and I think this is just a aspect of my personality, but I think it's developed into something that allows me to enjoy work a little bit more is I try to make things a little bit fun. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, the first things that I was doing when I was coding was I was making games. You know, I was making kind of fun stuff. And I actually remember, <laughs> this is back when I was still a teenager, actually, I would put song lyrics and stuff as little hidden Easter eggs and the stuff that I was building and everything <laughs> because I was I was blasting the music and I was jamming out to it and I was enjoying myself while I was doing it. And I try to bring a sense of humor and a sense of fun to the stuff that I'm working on too. Yeah. And I think that that allows me to enjoy it a little bit more. Now, I realize that this could be a liability in some circles. You know, why, why is this guy on the conference call making a stupid joke? Yeah, I, I get it. And you have to temper it based on the, the audience or whatever. But I I do try to make things a little bit fun for me, if possible, either by interactions with other people or just by doing something that I enjoy while I'm coding, you know, whether it's music or watching a movie or or that kind of thing. Do you do anything to try and make stuff fun for you or is that just something that I need? I think I probably need to make things more fun sometimes. It's kind of interesting. When it comes to my work, I tend to be a little bit on the more serious side. No. Yeah. But outside (laughs) of that, like at home, there could probably be a contest between me and my child as to who is the actual child in the house. Right. Right. And that childlike curiosity too, right? And it just, you know, like, I don't know. And I do it with my kids and just mundane things as well. Things that would otherwise be really boring, you, you can have fun with it if you make a little game out of it. Yeah. I don't know. It was just something I was thinking about. Because we have lots and lots of training materials that tell us how to do this and how to do that. And everyone knows that you do a better job at what you're doing when you are enjoying what you're doing or you find fulfilling what you're doing. And so I was kind of pondering the question of, well, how can we, there must be strategies, there must be ways that we can make that happen. And that almost seems like half of the equation. You know, there's one thing is knowing how to do it. And the other part is enjoying it. And then you're probably going to do a better job and you're not going to feel miserable. And maybe we should change the language. I don't like to change language. But maybe we should change it. Instead of finding something fulfilling, you should make it fulfilling. Yes. Like, it's yeah. like you put the the action is on you rather than being passive. You don't find it fulfilling. You, you make it fulfilling. And there's all sorts of ways of doing that, especially in the we're so fortunate to do the type of, and everybody that listens to this, the type of work that we do. I'd be hard pressed to find someone that listens to this, is, works in the same industry that couldn't find or, or make their work fulfilling. Yeah, I just think it's something that maybe it could be a craft quest video. I don't know. But, you know, a way to not just know how to do the thing, but a way to make your work more fulfilling. And it might be dicey because it will be different for every person. Mm -hmm. But I just find it an interesting topic because I I almost think that it's it's probably not 50 percent of the equation in terms of doing good work. But I do think it is a significant portion. And I don't think people pay that much attention to that or watch training videos. They'll watch them uh, how to use GraphQL, but they're not going to watch them on how to enjoy learning something new or how to enjoy a mundane task or that type of thing. Yeah. 
I wonder if a, an entry into that would be trying to teach something like an example project would be would be something very silly versus something yeah. more straight laced that's very practical. My examples are always very practical because I I want to convey how you can take what you're learning and apply it in a real world situation. And typically those are very practical situations. And it's funny you should mention that because as soon as you said that, I immediately thought of Wes Boss. Yeah, exactly. Who is someone who has been very successful in, in what he teaches. And he's always integrating something fun in mm -hmm. his examples. Like he'll have ordering pizza and he'll be very opinionated on what toppings can go on a pizza. <laughs> Or he'll be putting the names of his kids and his dogs and that kind of stuff into the, you know, he's obviously making it a little bit personal, a little bit more fun and a little bit approachable. And it, it seems to me that that probably is something that he's doing. I don't know whether it's subconsciously, it's just his personality or he's doing it on purpose, but it seems like he's doing exactly that. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I agree. I, I like his his stuff a lot. So I had uh, a couple other things that I wanted to speak about. One of the things that I wanted to bring up is just a really small, annoying bug that we both ran into with Docker Compose. Oh, yeah. So apparently they came out with an updated version of Docker for the Mac. And I didn't know why, because I hadn't dug into it yet, but the names of the containers were different. So there's a separator character that it would put in there. It would put the name of the project, dash the name of the service, dash the instance of the container, like a number, a serial number. And those were underscores. And then I woke up one day and I spun up my containers and they had dashes in them. And I'm like, well, what the hell? <laughs> As what is I. going on here? Yeah. And I did my due diligence. I looked in the change log. I didn't see anything about dashes to underscores or anything like that. Did the same. Yep. And I just sort of shrugged and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll update my make files so that it can find these <laughs> containers again. So I just changed the underscores to dashes and I went about my day. And then you contacted me. And what did you say to me, Ryan? I said, Andrew, what the hell is wrong with your software? No, that's what I was- Oh, let me, let me reinterpret that for you. You said, Andrew, that wonderful learning resource that you provided for free <laughs> that I'm leveraging to do my day job and I am very appreciative of is for some reason not working. Yeah. Do you have, I, do you have free time or can I pay you consulting to try and help me with this? <laughs> oh, wait, no, that's exactly not how you put it. No, it's not. I So I actually <laughs> did not contact you immediately when I found this because this is, a, this is a lesson and this is also about why I think my job is fun and interesting is I learned a lot in the whole process. Yeah, I started digging right. into your make file, into the Docker compose file, into the other Docker files because I was trying to figure out, is there, I saw your commit where you changed when you're setting a, a variable there you, or a constant or whatever it is in the make file. I think it was in the make file where you change the underscores to dashes for the container names. And I was like, okay, like, is there something else that I'm missing? Like, why would this, it was working on some of my stuff, but not on others. I was able to dig in and actually become even more familiar with how it's all put together. So there's a learning experience there. I wanted to make sure I did my due diligence first before I contacted you. But then I just was out. I just couldn't figure it out anymore. I was like, is this just the me thing or is Andrew facing this too? And then what I said to you was, you're crazy. They they changed that in some version of Docker. It's not da it's not underscores anymore. It's now dashes. Yep. And then me being the compulsive person, I, I don't know, nah, compulsive is not the right word. Me being the thorough person that I am, mm -hmm. I spun it up locally myself. And it changed back to underscores. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell? 
what, what is going on here? And again, I looked in the logs and there's nothing about changing it nope. anywhere. And so I did a little research and what I found out is what they did is they changed from the Docker uh, Compose version one API, which apparently was in Python, to the Docker Compose two API, which is now written in Go. And one of the changes that they made is the separator character was now a dash and not an underscore. Okay, that explains why I had to change it once. Apparently, a bunch of people were like, holy crap, my stuff is broken. So Understandably so. In a next version, what they did is they rolled the change back. So it's going back to using the Docker Compose V1 API, and then they made it an option. So now it's in preferences. So you can go into preferences and you can turn this thing on. And I realize for most people, this is the most boring topic on the planet, Docker, you know, whatever. But it's one of those obscure little bugs that it was just baffling to me. Yeah. And I guess what I found a little bit bothersome was they said in the change log, I don't even know if they said in the change log that they were using Docker Compose V2. I don't even know if they mentioned that, but they certainly didn't mention or test for any of the ramifications of this, which is a, a breaking change. Yeah, I, and I, I discovered it in the middle of recording a training video on migrations. Nice. And I nice. went to run make craft migrate up and that, so you have a conditional at the top of the make file where you say, if the, you check for the names of the containers, if they're already there, you don't spin them up, right? Then you just continue on. It kept spinning up, shutting down and then spinning up new containers because it, the, that conditional didn't pass. Right. So it was driving me crazy. And I could have just changed my local copy of the make file just to use the underscores or just use the back again. But and that would have been fine. It just wouldn't have been the permanent fix. Right. Um, but anyway, but yeah, I mean, it stopped me in my track. So it's kind of, it's disruptive. And I saw people in, in a GitHub thread that were complaining about it. Just saying like, whoa, whoa, what's this like? This is like a major breaking change. You just kind of like right. subtly dropped in. To a release. And that's the lesson here. So I'm not talking about this just to complain about it or to show how to track it down and figure out what's going on. It's more just about if you're making breaking changes, you should be very clear mm -hmm. in your change log or in your release notes or in something that this breaking change is happening. And it didn't happen in a major version either. <laughs> Like yeah. It was in a, a minor release is where it was broken. It was a point point release, right? It wasn't. I, I don't know, honestly. It, it was at least just a point release. It might have been a point point. I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. But switching the whole Compose API that you're using. I mean, I realized that in theory, probably they were trying to swap out something that was compatible with the other thing. But this is a lesson for us, Ryan. So I'm actually in the middle of doing some stuff. I just released a big update to SEOmatic that GraphQLs all the things. So oh. from the beginning, from day one, when GraphQL launched, pretty sure I had it ready very soon after there's been a GraphQL API for SEOmatic. However, that didn't include things like sitemaps. And it didn't include things like front-end templates like robots.txt and a couple of other minor things. And I, I spent a bunch of time refactoring all of that so that there's a full GraphQL API for everything. And the reason that matters is if you're doing a headless CMS, it's a lot more convenient to just be able to do everything via GraphQL rather than trying to curl down the, the craft instance, which, you know, it might not even be publicly accessible, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Much easier if they can get at everything via GraphQL. 
Now, for some of these things, it amounts to just a key value where the value is the file contents and the key is the file name. But still, just the fact that you can keep it all in one GraphQL workflow is really useful for people that are doing that thing rather than saying, well, what you should do is set up curl and save it up to a file and include that in your build artifacts and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. I'm looking at the issue, the feature request from your brother-in-law. Oh, yeah. I won't know that you made him wait two years to uh, have that fulfilled. <laughs> well, understand. <laughs> First of all, you. a feature request is a feature request, <laughs> right? And these have to be prioritized, right? I think bug fixes are more important. And then, honestly, there were some other features that were more important, too. Yeah. And the other thing is, I had back-channel discussions with him and some other people, and they had workarounds. You right, know, They just right, weren't right. as nice or as you. convenient. But this shows you, I'm, I'm going to turn your negative into a positive, Ryan. This okay. shows you how diligent I am in going back and making sure that some of these things are end up getting taken care of and don't just go by the wayside. Okay. You're a good person. Well, let's not go too far. <laughs> but the reason I bring that up is in the process of doing those additional GraphQL APIs, I figured out that the way that I did some of the earlier ones, I wasn't so happy with, and I would rather make them more like this one. But that would introduce a breaking change. And I don't want to do that in a point release. Right. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be deprecating the current API. It's still going to work, but I'm going to be introducing the new, just cleaner one. And it's really just cleaner from an implementation point of view and also from probably easier for people to get access to the stuff that's in there. But that's how you should probably try to do breaking changes if you can is deprecate the old way, make people aware of it, and introduce the new way, and allow a transition period for people to adopt the thing. And then when you issue a major release, that's when you can kill off the deprecated APIs. And I realize this is kind of library author 101 in terms of the stuff that you need to do, but I think it's useful to think about it. Andrew, I wanted to ask if you know what Web3 is. I've heard of it, something blockchain, blah, blah, blah. So you know Web 1.0. I know that... All of these terms were things that they just slapped on something that kind of existed. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So that was, that was essentially the first version of the web, probably at least when I started working on it. And we had web 2.0, which is when we started using Ajax and all of that stuff would be web 2.0. And so responsive like design, have, wasn't that kind of lumped in there with web 2.0? Gosh, that seems like web 2.5, but maybe, maybe. I just think there are a bunch of technologies that lots of people started adopting and they someone decided, let's coin a phrase for all of these things. Yeah, you know? so I, I think web, it depends on who you're asking what web 2.0 is. To me, web 2.0 was Ajax and more dynamic pages versus static HTML that just showed something, things that you could interact with without a page refresh. But but some people think it's when commerce was trusted online and prominent. So it just depends. Maybe they're all interrelated. Anyway, Web3 is the idea that we are going to have a practical sense. And I'm not an expert on this. So if you're listening, you can email Andrew at nystudio107.com with any complaints. Please, please do not. <laughs> but is that Web3 is, it is about the blockchain and in an implementation sense, it would be running applications on the blockchain. So in Ethereum, you can actually install and run applications on the blockchain. The idea is that it's also decentralized. There's inherent or built-in trust in it because it's in the blockchain. It's not just about cryptocurrencies or anything like that. I also see Web 3.0 as also including more, and maybe this is Web 2.9.0, is more like... <laughs> 
edge hosted applications as well. Even though that's old technology, it's still servers somewhere. It's not based on the blockchain, but we're not even there. We're not there yet where everybody is hosting things like distributed. I mean, big companies are, but not normal people aren't hosting things on edge servers. So anyway, so Web 3.0, it's it's where we're seeing a more mainstream less edge case implementation of blockchain technology. How well, interested you, are you in stuff like in that kind of stuff? Well, I'll tell you, despite the fact that I literally threw millions and millions of dollars into a trash heap many years ago, when I took my computer that I was mining Bitcoin on my company network and, uh, you know, just threw it out because, uh, you know, Bitcoin is, is never going to be a thing. Are so, you serious? No. Oh, my God. Yeah, you have no idea. Oh, my gosh. I could own an island. Right. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> well, this was back when literally Bitcoin was worth nothing. Mm -hmm. And you actually could mine it just on desktop computers, especially a, a network of them. Yeah. And you also couldn't use it for anything. So, you know, I was just like, oh, well, that's neat. You know, whatever. So despite the fact that there is that uh, fresh wound that will never go away, a lot of the cryptocurrency stuff to me, it's very much based on speculation. In other words, lots of people have made lots of money in crypto. Lots of people have also lost lots of money, <laughs> but it's really based on speculation. And it's an insider's game in a lot of ways in terms of the people that are making money on it. And look, man, I, I know some people. I knew a guy that was a, a poker player and heavy pot smoker, like just a kind of always broke, you know, just kind of casual kind of dude. And he was going on and on about this Bitcoin poker thing that some site had made him the, the marketing rep for this Bitcoin poker site. And he got involved with it and everyone was like, oh, that's cute, you know, whatever. And uh, they paid him in Bitcoin and he was a true believer mm -hmm. and he is very rich right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's very rich, right? It's a little bit but, of a lottery though, but yeah. But uh, the crypto market, at least currently, is largely based on speculation still in terms mm -hmm. of you have the Bitcoin, you have Ethereum, you have whatever coin you want. And the value it has is based on what value other people ascribe to it. And you're typically just holding on to it. You're not actually using it in day-to-day -day commerce for stuff. Which now, again, is what the original dream was, right? Is that it's actually a, a unit of commerce. Yeah. Right, which is what it was supposed to be, right. is you know freedom from the existing financial systems and right. stuff. Now, this isn't me crapping on it because there are plenty of things that are pure speculation that people make tons of money on. Derivatives markets, stock market, you know, lots of these things. And there are lots of other things that have value just because people think they have value. My son asked me, why is gold so valuable? And I'm, I'm like... <laughs> Well, because it's useful in some ways, but mostly because it's shiny and easy to work with, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, and you know, if you're selling your home, what is your home worth? Well, your home is worth what someone else is going to pay for it. So there, there are lots of these things that the value is ascribed just by whether other people want it or not. The thing about it is, especially things like NFTs, NFTs remind me of, if you remember back in the day, you used to be able to, maybe you still can actually, NFTs remind me of being able to buy your own star. Right. So if you remember that, remember like you that. could buy yeah. your own star and you could name it yep. and you could give it as a gift to someone. And what happens when you do that? Your ownership of that star, as well as the name, goes into a central registry, a.k.a. a blockchain. You know, I mean, it's a similar idea. Yeah, it's a registry it's, of stuff. Stars are also non-fungible, right? I mean, right. They, yeah, let's hope. Well, <laughs> until they explode. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the idea is that an NFT means that you own this thing. It's saying you are the one that owns this thing, but you don't actually own the thing, just like you don't actually own the star when your name is ascribed to it. There's just a little something sitting in a registry somewhere that says you own this thing. Now, again, 
again, not to say that you couldn't potentially make tons of money from this, especially when it's a fad and people are jumping on board and wanting to buy it. I think the highway is also going to be littered with people owning just the most ridiculous NFTs that they couldn't sell to save their life. Because, you know, there's a there was an image that sold for a whole lot of money as an NFT, but they didn't sell the image, right? The person still owns the image who made it. All they have is something in a central registry that says you own this thing. You own this NFT token. This token. Right? Yeah. And the, you're the, the only one that can own it. So it's kind of, it really is kind of like owning your own star in that, yeah, okay, you own it, but you don't actually own the thing. <laughs> you just own the entry in the registry that says you own this thing. And humans are weird in terms of the way we ascribe value. So I'm certainly not sitting here saying that crypto is worthless, NFTs are worthless. I don't think that at all, because I think it's all going to depend on people's confidence and interest in the thing in terms of what value it's going to have. And clearly, Bitcoin and some other cryptocurrencies are things that people have decided is a good thing to invest in and use as future speculation. So I do think these things can potentially have value. But it's also one of those things, man, where as soon as someone thinks that your NFT that points to a particular special edition shoe, as soon as people are just like, I don't want that, mm -hmm. it becomes instantly worthless. Yeah. My feeling with NFTs right in the current fad that we're in with them is, and that's not, I'm not passing judgment on them as a whole, because I think there's, there's likely broader applications, is that no, it's like hot potato. No one, you don't ever want to be the person currently holding a very valuable NFT. You always right. want to be the person that has just sold a very valuable right. NFT. Right. And I realize we're conflating NFTs with crypto a little bit. I mean, they, they're no, interrelated are, in some all, ways. Or they're not quite the same thing. And it's not... And NFTs aren't really part of Web3 in terms of the work that you and I do, writing code, deploying applications that are uh, used on the web. Well, I don't know, Ryan. People are selling NFTs for the first commit to some very famous GitHub repos and, and other code things like that. Um, so maybe on CraftQuest, I should generate and give NFTs to people that achieve certain things on the site. Here's the key, though. Who do NFTs benefit? They primarily benefit people that have some kind of notoriety or things that have some kind of notoriety already. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you are a celebrity, you probably could sell your bathwater or an NFT to your bathwater or something like that. I'm not even making this up. There's a, God, what is her name? Belle Delphine. That's who it is. He's some ridiculous YouTuber that what she did was she sold her bathwater, like literally sold her bathwater. It bottled up in little bottles and people were going crazy buying it all all over the place, right? Just buying the dumbest things. Yeah. And it's kind of similar with NFTs in that if you are famous, let's say you're Michael Jordan and there's some or famous Bank, or shop. Or Banksy or something, right? Or, you know, you have some notoriety in some way. Right. that people want who want to feel special or important or part of the thing would find value in owning some moment that you had, well, then you're going to get a real benefit out of NFTs. But if you're just like you and me, some dude who wakes up in the morning, you're not going to sell no NFT to your toenail clippings. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just not going to happen. Or, you know, whatever, even something useful or interesting that we've done. So NFTs are something that I think they really tend to benefit people or things that have notoriety already. Because for people to be interested 
interested in buying them. They have to know about it already and be interested in it already. There was a, a case, again, a, a poker-related one. Uh, it's interesting. Poker and crypto are pretty interrelated because a lot of people think online poker in the United States is illegal. It actually isn't, and it never was illegal. What they did is they made the transfer of money for that purpose to be illegal. So what a lot of poker players did is they got in on crypto because they could trade Bitcoin without ah. any kind of a problem, right? And so a lot of poker players have gotten in on the NFT thing. So there's a, a famous hand that a, a very notable poker player played. And you can buy the NFT for that hand, for instance. Now, I, I don't care. Like this, even though I enjoy poker, I don't really play much anymore, but I enjoy it and all that. I have no I ascribe no value to that whatsoever. But because of the notoriety of the person and the event, there are enough people that have interest in it. Right. So I just think it's interesting to note that NFTs are something that if you have any kind of fame or clout, or you have a thing that has some kind of fame or is well known, that's where you can apply NFTs. But for the, let's say you're an unknown artist, you're not going to sell no NFTs to your artwork. Like it's not going to happen. You know? Right. That makes sense. So that, that was your way of saying that you're not going to buy any craft quest NFTs, I guess. No, probably not. But, oh, it, okay. you know, just being realistic, <laughs> you're not going to sell them. <clears throat> it's just the way it is. I'm not trying to denigrate you or anything. You do you're, great work. It's you're kind of raining on my parade a little bit here. I thought I was about to be the next crypto king. Well, I think it's fun to look at who these things actually benefit. Yeah. If you are a celebrity, this is one great way to leverage your celebrity, whether it's as an internet celebrity or movie or sports or whatever, well, then you can capitalize on that notoriety that you build up and make money from these kinds of things. Right. But I think that's where it's kind of an inside baseball kind of thing in a way that yeah, the people it, that it benefits are those people, you know? It definitely feels like another collector's game. But I, I like that you talked about how it's not really that much different than how we treat the value of other things. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the, to me, that's the divide where you think somebody might be like, oh, those kids in their cryptocurrencies, that's just worthless stuff. There's, right. no, there's no real, there's no real worth or value there. Meanwhile, they're in their $1.2 million thousand square foot house in a, in a town somewhere. And you're like, well, how is that worth $1.2 million? It literally has $5,000 of lumber that from 1950 that put right. that thing together. Well, how is it any different? It's all just perceptions that we have about what something is worth. And to me, that's the gulf between that old way of valuing things and the new way of valuing things and also the gulf between living only in the real world, like human to human. Some people call it meat space. I think it's kind of a gross <laughs> word. Um, and, you know, the the metaverse, you know, the- uh, Is this virtual, a Facebook ad? Virtual reality. No, it's not. But it's like, I don't think that those these two things are that far apart. I just think that some people just have some biases based on their age versus other people who, who well, are- Sure, man. Like younger. if you have invested tons of time in a game, your possessions in that game are valuable to you. Yeah. You know, if you've worked on them and earned them and all that kind of stuff, they're every bit as valuable to you as some of the real world possessions that you might have. You know, okay, so maybe they don't have the same utility, but they still hold value to you. They hold you. value, yeah. My and, kid plays Roblox and she has things in that game that or in one of the games on Roblox that are really important to her. That she actually has paid money for from her own right. allowance to have like these certain attributes or features or things. That's and they right. mean a lot like she it would be a big deal if her account somehow was canceled and she didn't have access to that anymore because she earned it or she paid for it. And it, it means something. It means something more than a physical item that she could get. Yeah. So the, the new way of valuing things is a lot like the old way of valuing things. And it's just is how much do other people value that same thing is yeah. what it is. You know, everyone decides they want to live in the same area. Well, the value of that 
place goes way up. And if you think about it, why is the dollar worth anything? Like you take a dollar bill to the store, why is that worth anything? Well, in reality, it's not, but it's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. So then you have something like Bitcoin. Well, why is that valuable? Because it's backed by the, the full faith and credit of all the other all people, the people that think that Bitcoin right. has value. So it's that, not really that different. And that's the argument that a lot of the Bitcoin proponents make, which is they call the dollar a fiat currency because it is no longer backed by gold. There's no longer a limited supply Supply material that one to one backs the currency, but clearly that doesn't matter because no, it doesn't. the the issue or the real thing that is backing it again is the full faith and credit and the fact that I can take that dollar bill down to a local store. Well, okay, I can't really buy anything with a dollar. I can take that twenty dollar bill <laughs> yeah. down to a local store and I can try to buy something. The interesting thing about Bitcoin is that you cannot do that. Mm -hmm. So. I can't just go to my local pizza shop and buy a pizza using Bitcoin. That's just not a thing. Unless that they take Bitcoin, but they likely don't. Uncommon, right? Due to the, I mean, I realize that there are ways that they have worked around this, but the high cost and the speed of the Bitcoin transactions are slow. And they basically have layered on another layer of currency to allow that to be quicker. So, you know, maybe those things will be solved. But realistically, that's just not happening. There are far more people that are using something like Apple Pay mm -hmm. to go and buy something at a local store than are using something like Bitcoin just because of the acceptance of the thing and, and to some extent limitations of the technology that, that are there. But it's just interesting that the actual utility of Bitcoin is not the thing that has caused it to be over $60,000 per coin. God, I'm going to have a heart attack thinking about how much money I would have had. Anyway, <laughs> it's the fact that other people find value in this thing. Right. It's like language. So, we all agree on the meanings of words and what those words are. And if we didn't, right. we'd be a big old mess. So despite the fact that I've sort of said in some ways that I think NFTs are stupid. <laughs> You're getting to get some email. Uh, that's fine. I, that doesn't mean that I don't think that they are going to have value because right. humans are weird, man. You know, if if we all just collectively decide that these NFTs are, are awesome and if in some way I can have clout by owning the, the NFT for this thing or that thing, well, they're going to continue to have value and some people are probably going to make a whole bunch of money. Agreed. But so speaking of the metaverse, one of the things that I picked up recently mm -hmm. is I bought an Oculus Quest 2. Amazing which, device. And I realize I'm late. You know, I'm usually right up there on, on getting the, the new toy. But in this case, I'm kind of late to the party. I'm like, a, it came out of over a year ago, right? It did. Yeah, we got one. I bought one for the family last year for Christmas. I think it came out around October, November, yep. maybe last year. So it, like a lot of people hate Facebook and you have to have a Facebook account in order to use it. Yep. I'm not that dogmatic about this whole thing, I think that the thing that kept me from using VR like that was that I had to have like another computer sitting next to it. Right. That the goggles were attached to either, right. you know, and I don't want to, this is all integrated into the goggles and we love it. My kid loves it. She has our friends over and they like to play it sometimes. And, but she likes things like the virtual reality, like, um, what is it? Job simulator where you can have different jobs. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. you need to have a talk with your daughter. This is horrible. And then vacation simulator. I'll be like, what are you doing? And she'd be like laying on the floor. She's like, I'm in my bed in my hotel room. I'm on vacation. Ryan, take your daughter on a vacation somewhere. I mean, my God, what are you doing? Do you, oh. So, but yeah, what have you, have you already received it and used it? Yeah. So what's I'll your tell experience? You what sold me on it. Like I, I, obviously I knew about this thing, but I was just like, oh yeah, you know, that's neat or whatever. I don't know how I stumbled upon it, but I stumbled upon a Star Wars game that was available for the Oculus Quest 2. And I saw people wielding a lightsaber in a VR simulator. And I'm like, I'm 
buying yeah. it. I'm like, I have always wanted to do that. Are you kidding me? Sold. So I bought it and I played it with it a little bit. I've been pretty busy, but my son was using it and he was playing just Vader Immortal, I believe mm-hmm. is the game. And we haven't even started the game. So we're just in this like training dojo where you can learn how to use the lightsaber and everything. Yeah. And man, it is so cool. Like you map out the area that you can be in yep. and you have this headset on. Like you said, you're not tethered to anything. It's there. It's light. Works really well. And you reach out and you grab the lightsaber with your hand and you pick it up. You turn it on and it's just incredible. And my son was playing it for a little bit and he's just like, oh, I've always wanted to do this. You know, he had yeah. a lightsaber. He's doing it. And I'm like, yeah, me too, buddy. Like <laughs> Totally. And we're having, we barely scratch the surface like we have a number of games for it i've only ever tried that one game and we're still in the training dojo and we're having a (laughs) blast with it man we're having such a good time i love it yeah so do the maybe your kids would like this too the 360 degree roller coaster videos too Oh, God. Do those on there. They'll freak you out. And trying to think what what else I've played. I haven't done a ton on it. I think my yep. only complaint with it is that, and maybe I shouldn't, it's only a complaint because I'm I'm not cheap. I'm just not. It just seems off. The games seem kind of expensive. It's okay to be cheap, Ryan. Yeah. The games seem kind of expensive. I think every, it's like basically console game prices for games on there. It's actually true because I, I woke up the next morning and I looked at my credit card statement. I'm like, <laughs> holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> what, are, what are all these charges? Um, I, I, apparently I went a little crazy with the buy button on there. Yeah, but it's it's an amazing device. And I I feel like that it's if they start getting the form factor lower and lower, like we have younger kids that have smaller heads, it still is a little bit front heavy and you have to get the straps going well. They have Uh, this elite strap for it that makes it a lot better. Oh, really? Yeah, there's this little strap that you put on there that it has a little crank that you dial back and it makes it stay on the kids' heads much, much easier. Oh, I'm going to have to look at that because that's been a struggle as we swap between kids, you know, if if my daughter has friends over. It's perfect because it's just a a dial on the back and you crank it up or down and it just makes it super easy to not only get it on different people of Mm -hmm. different sizes, but also then to have it fit snugly on them without having to jerk around with it much. I will look at that then. I'm so well, in Christmas present, Ryan. But I, you know. Oh gosh, we're already done because we we ordered everything early to, to get around the uh, supply chain constraints. Oh my God, you just <laughs> sapped all of the fun out of Christmas by saying shot in November to get around supply chain issues. All right. <laughs> That's how it is. Anyway, I've been having a fantastic time with this thing. Barely have scratched the surface, but my son was just playing it last night. It was the first time he ever played it. And he woke up this morning and he's like, Dad, would it be bad if I played that game before school today? Yeah. And and that's how I knew that he really loved it. And again, we're only in the training part of this thing. Yeah. And he's having a a freaking blast with it, you know? It's so immersive and fun. You have to be in there. And we used to like see your hands and it's just, you know, because you have the controllers in your hands and that replaces it with your visual version of your hand. It's just, it's super cool. It's a, it's a great device. All right. So let's go from something fun to something immensely boring. Okay. You had something about time block planning. (laughs) Yeah. So have you heard of this before? I mean, I understand what the words mean and I think I know what you mean, which is just you block off sections of time to plan for stuff. So every day in the morning, I sit down. In your cold rain barrel while you scrub your back and you have your rubby ducky there. (laughs) We don't need anyone to have a visual of me scrubbing my back. And Well, your neighbors do. Um, (laughs) Anyway. You think I'm like the Waltons here on Walton Mountain? No, I think you just have no shame. (laughs) (laughs) Just because I grew up in New Jersey doesn't mean I don't have shame. So every day I, I sit down in the morning when I start my day and I have 
what's the equivalent of kind of like a graph paper. And I just create these blocks. So I label, let's say on the Y axis, 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 11 a.m., so forth, all the way down to 5 p.m. I'm the most boring person in the world. I, I was going to say, does this give you pleasure? Because I hope I it does. Because it I sounds like torture office, to me. <laughs> I come to my office as if there's a boss waiting for me. And I work as if someone was watching If I was your boss and you came in here with some drawings on some graph paper, I would fire you, right? <laughs> So what I do is, the idea is that you plan your day, you don't let your day happen, you're intentional. And you say from nine to noon, I'm going to have a time to focus on writing the code for a new important feature of SEOmatic. And I'm not doing anything else during that time. I'm not answering email. I'm not texting with Ryan about random stuff or sending him insults or anything like that. You're just focused on one thing. And then you say, okay, from 12 to 1230, we're going to take a break, have lunch, chill. And then from 1230 to 330 or 230 or whatever, I'm going to work on this thing. And the idea is that you intentionally plan each day so that you're doing the things that are most important to you that are perhaps what's on your on your calendar to have done by a certain time if you have deadlines and you can just be more intentional about your day and then at the end of the week you realize like oh wow I got all this stuff done I didn't have random one hour escapades on Twitter or social media I just was able to focus on all of my work so that's what I do and I use a there's a website so there's, there's a planner I use called the Time Black Planner it's by this author Cal Newport I've mentioned his books before and but you you don't need to have a planner like this you can just use graph paper you can use just a normal notebook if you want and the idea is that you're just intentional about what you're working on. Can and we when use you're a computer? Can we use these wonderful tools called computers or do we have to use paper? No, you can use a computer. You can just have a text file and you can just say 9-12, this thing. It's all about just sitting down and every morning just having that process that is of setting your plan for the day and then sticking to it. And know that during those longer blocks where you're trying to do your more focused work, writing code, if you sit down and work on a new feature for SEOmatic, it may take you 20 minutes to settle in to where you're really engrossed in the whole thing and trying to fit. I mean, it, it does for me. I don't know how you work. Maybe you can just drop right into it. But, and the idea is that you have three hours and if you get in that deep focus mode on the work, you don't want to be interrupted by a bunch of other things. So if you set that time aside, that's the only thing you work on you put your we have all these nice focus modes on our phone now on in ios you just have that focus mode and you won't get any notifications from anyone about anything you, you know what i've noticed that though what's that is that people that have that feature on mm -hmm. i'll text them and i'll get a little thing back saying focus mode is on do you really want to notify them <laughs> right. and then and then they write me back anyway yeah so I've it's like off those notifications you shouldn't see it from me anymore i've disabled it but what i'm saying is they were ignoring the fact that they were right. in focus mode and they were just doing what they were doing before anyway totally but, so I do not do what you're talking about. I probably would drive you absolutely insane because I, I, I don't sit down with a no grid paper or notebook and plan out what I'm doing. I do sometimes mentally decide what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit more feel-based in terms of what do I feel like doing? Because I, I have a huge pile of things that I could be doing on any particular day. And some days I feel like writing. Some days I feel like coding. Some, you know, this, that, or the other thing. But also, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's ADD. I don't think it's anything like that. I think I just work pretty well in chaos. Mm -hmm. So I can do stuff, like I can be writing an article and I can be answering people's texts or in Discord or something like that. I can jump back and forth or I can be watching a movie or TV show while I'm doing something else. Yeah, I can't and do that. Are, 
arguably, you know, maybe I'm doing a much worse job <laughs> at the, the thing that I'm trying to do. I've never done like an A-B test to see what the, the quality of work is like, but I do find that I enjoy it a little bit more if I'm doing that. I don't know how well that would work for me to structure it as formally as that. Maybe, maybe it would actually be helpful. I don't know. So you can do, let's say you do two, two hour blocks in a day where you're just focused on the work. The nice thing is that in those four hours, you probably have had more productivity and more good work done than a lot of people would if they didn't do this. I feel like that I can do all of my work really well. And what are you saying about the quality of my work, Ryan? I'm not saying anything about that. I uh, I feel like I could do a lot of my work in way less than 40 hours and still get a, everything I need done at the level and quality that I want to do it. So getting back to our topic on loving your work, yeah. does having this kind of structure allow you to enjoy your work more? Because to me, I, my gut instinct would be that if it were that formalized, I, I might enjoy it less. I don't know. I do enjoy it more because I don't think about it. I just, mm. I'm in there and I'm doing it, but I also allow myself time. I have at the end of my day, usually the last hour or two, I usually leave it open. So it's just planning and thinking. I can process, especially on Fridays when we're recording this, the end of my day is wide open. I can do whatever I want. A lot of times it's just sitting and just thinking and reflecting on the work I've done and looking through just ideas that I've had or just not, do, or even reading a book. You know, just, or, just or whatever. curling up and taking a nap, right? Or t I, I mean, I'm a, I love naps. I have a yoga mat. <laughs> right here that I roll out on the floor and I sleep on all the time. Um, well, I think that's interesting. I, I, I don't know that it's something that I'm going to necessarily try, but maybe I will. I don't know. Yeah, it's probably a little Puritan of me because I, I do think that structure like that does make things more fun and it feels like I have more freedom and fun outside of that structure. So you so, like being told what to do, even if the person telling you what to do is yourself, right? You like I having I only that. like being told what to do when it's me that's telling oh. you what to do. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I have a problem with that, yeah. And the free time in the afternoon, you use kind of as a, a cookie. So you're like, okay, if I get through these blocks of time and I did the, the stuff that I said I was going to do, my reward is going to be my free time at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and that's a lot of people don't agree with that. I've had long conversations with old friends where they say, wow, so you're just going to deprive yourself now just so you can have it later? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, people are different. I know this is a shocking revelation and what works for some people doesn't work for others. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I see people using all kinds of strategies and I'm like, great. You know, if that's something that allows you to do what you need to do, that's wonderful. I think this is also sort of the mentality that has made some traditional companies have a hard time during the pandemic is that they're used to having that kind of control over people mm -hmm. and that forced structure on people. And on the other hand, there are some people that are used to having that kind of structure and need that kind of structure in order to do their stuff. Yeah. And you when, know, I, when I worked for another for a company that had an employer, I absolutely resented the fact that they mm. imposed that structure on my day, that I had to be in this office yep. nine to five. I am in this office nine to five every single day working for myself. And I was for the five years before I had that job. And I have been for the almost year since I left the job. I am, I just, that's just built into me. It's just how I work. I just like that routine. I like doing the same thing every day like that. And then every once in a while I'll, I'll get tired and I just will change things up. I do the same thing with running. I'm very structured. Tuesdays at 5 a.m. I get up to run. Thursdays at 5 a.m. I get up to run. Saturdays at 7. Sundays at 7. I try to do it every single week so I don't have to think about it. But and for things like that, I agree. For things 
things like that, it needs to be a habit. So we do the same thing with our workouts and with the hikes and stuff like that. Like that, I guess I do do what you're talking about. But sometimes I I get tired of it and I say, I'm quitting running. I don't like that. I feel like now that the schedule is controlling me and Mm. I, I, I need to exercise my agency and I need to exercise my free will if that exists. Oh, dear God. And so I just stop. I stop running for like two weeks just to prove to myself that I can do it. And then I go right back into it again because I realize the benefit of that. Right of that routine. Right. Um, now, it's just all me, mind games. We're not, nothing's real. It's all perceptions. So you mentioned that you resented some of the, when your time was being imposed on you. Mm-hmm. So I immediately started thinking of Zoom meetings and, yeah. and you know, people that are just stuck in Zoom hell every day. Yeah. Do you know what a, a chaos monkey is? I don't. So there actually is a tool called chaos monkey, but there, it's also just kind of a general concept, which is, it is something that will go in and just randomly cause various systems to fail. To make oh, okay. sure that there is resiliency in whatever right. so it's like infra or app yeah. that you're working on. So it was Sean Swick's Wang tweeted out something that I thought was really funny. He said, hot startup idea, chaos monkey, but for meetings. So it would just randomly go in and cancel meetings. Yeah. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be great? I, would, I think I that's a fantastic idea. I bet the happiness of, of the employees would increase. Can you imagine if you had this slate of meetings and you looked at your day and you're just like, oh my God, I'm in meetings almost my entire day. And then you get a notification that said, chaos monkey has canceled meeting X. Like you'd yeah. be thrilled, you know? Oh man. We should put a pin in this topic because yep. the meetings aren't work. We should We should note that down for another another live stream or another uh, podcast. Well, they may not be work, but one of the reasons we're ending the show is because you have to go to a meeting. So it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like someone else is imposing their time on you and it sounds like work to me. Yeah, but yeah. that about wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, drop us a review. Five star really helps in terms of discoverability. Just saying, we really appreciate it. For the devmode.fm podcast, I'm Andrew Welch. And I'm Ryan Ireland. audio was terrible in the beginning like it was breaking up and choppy and all that kind of stuff i'm hoping it's not on the original recording so if you're listening to this and ryan's audio was garbage in the beginning we apologize we don't know what it is ryan keeps bragging to me about some fiber this or fiber that but i don't know oh well i've been uploading uh, videos to vimeo the whole time we were recording well that sounds like a, a really good choice ryan that's that's good yeah thank you thank you i'm full of good choices